The problem with SaaS back then was it was still fresh and new and certainly not understood. We really paid more attention to the world around us than our own operations. It turned out to be a good move, actually. Think of these disruptive events as like real opportunities as opposed to scary things you have to deal with. It'll make that much more interesting and less like anxiety if you take that point of view. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm super excited to have my good friend Bruce Felt on the show. Bruce is the CFO of Domo, a cloud-based business management platform that connects executives with every aspect of the company, from employees to analytics, all in one place, a public company that has done quite well in a former GGV investment. Bruce has nearly 30 years of financial operations and management experience and was brought on as Domo CFO in 2014 shortly after the company's successful $60 million Series B, which GGV was very proud to lead. With Bruce on board, the company has raised another $530 million before going public in 2018. And Domo's performed well as a public company with many quarters in a row of over 20% growth and now positive free cash flow profile as well. The company has over 2,000 customers ranging from financial services to healthcare to retail. And with a huge addressable market, Domo's still got a long way to go. But Bruce's story is unique. He's been CFO of several software companies that he's navigated through IPOs and M&As. I met Bruce when he joined a GGV portfolio company, SuccessFactors, back in late 2006. And Bruce took SuccessFactors public about a year later, late 2007, just in time for the global financial crisis of 0809. The company weathered that storm and reaccelerated out of the GFC, ultimately selling to SAP for $3.4 billion in early 2012. And given the macro uncertainty of the current environment, I asked Bruce if he'd share with us his experiences during the period of the GFC with success factors and talk about which lessons he learned then that might be relevant today. So really looking forward to this. Bruce, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Hey, my pleasure to be here. So I wanted to start just to you know, level set a little bit about your background. You have a long and, and successful history with SaaS companies, even a history predating SaaS, going back to the late 80s when you founded Renaissance Software. What put you on the, the path and when was the moment you realized, hey, I'm, I'm going to be a career CFO and focus on software companies? Yeah. So thanks for saying I have a long history as opposed to saying you're old. So <laughs> I definitely appreciate that. But my introduction to technology and Silicon Valley really came via attending Stanford University. Before that, I was a senior manager at Deloitte in Atlanta and came out west to go to business school just to really round out my business education. It wasn't really to make a career change. And in fact, I was very happy to go back into public accounting. I contemplated investment banking. But as luck may have it, five of us wrote a business plan five people who never ran a company I want to highlight, and we got funded. And I thought, well, that seems rare and unusual and interesting. So I went that route. And what was interesting about that, it was Renaissance Software. It was focused on developing derivative trading 
front office and risk management software applications, just as open systems was hitting Wall Street. So it was like a beautiful graphical user interface application in a world that did not have that before. And what made that venture interesting wasn't there was just five of us starting from scratch, but I was naturally the chief financial officer, but the one of the founders who was supposed to run sales, who never ran sales before, by the way, really wasn't capable of doing it. So they said, Bruce, you're the most capable. So I ran sales for three years and our revenue, believe it or not, was two million the first year, six million the second, 18 the third. So that was a blast. The proverbial triple triple under you. Yeah. And ultimately it got bought by SunGuard for what seemed like a decent amount of money then, which is nothing today, but it was still kind of a a win with a whole bunch of twists and turns that I could cover on a different day. But that really got me in the game in Silicon Valley. And from there, as much as I love selling, and it was uh, on an airplane for three years straight, New York, London, Tokyo, I knew my trade and profession really was on the finance side. So I just decided to put that experience in my back pocket, become a more operational, top-line oriented CFO, and take it from there. And that led to like all the other companies after that. So anyway, I'll stop there as like, that's how I got to the game. That's awesome. And I know enough about your career to know that you still sell, even though you're also uh, the CFO. So you haven't completely put that in your back pocket. But let, let's fast forward a little bit to the success factors days, because I think like there's just a ton to pull from your lessons there. Maybe just start with telling, you know, just a, a quick reminder for folks who may not be familiar. What did success factors do? And what was the growth profile of the company leading up to the IPO? Yeah. So in the most general sense, Success Factors was in the human capital management space with its starting point being providing performance reviews in the cloud as the first offering. And that was the beginning of what turned out to be large portfolio products because that naturally led, that was kind of a compliance-led offering. It was focused at the large enterprises, and it led to natural products that complemented that, such as goal setting, compensation and compensation reviews, learning, analytics on top of all that. And you know, ultimately, we were heading toward HRIS systems and everything to be a complete offering under human capital management and recruiting as well. And we would have, you know, continued to build that out, certainly, had it not been for SAP that came around and gave us a reasonably good offer. And the growth profile, this is very interesting because we were in the 100% growth range as we had our IPO. It continued to be extremely high growth, no less than 50% year over year as we ran into the the downturn. And we quickly went to zero. That was the first quarter of the downturn. That was Q4 of that year. Let me pause there because I, I want to kind of ask a few more questions, but we'll get to kind of how you guys managed managed the downturn. But so short story is the company's grown really fast going into the IPO. And roughly what kind of scale were you at at IPO in terms of revenue and 
any other relevant metric? Yeah, so this was late 2000. 2007, late 2007. Yeah, 2006, 2007. Roughly in the 100 to 125 million range, we were doing quarters of 25 million and our Q4 was somewhere around 45 million. So, you know, very seasonal, but yeah, roughly in that range. Ultimately, in the exit, we were starting to hit around 500 million. So we had a lot more growth ahead of us at that time. Yeah. So growing fast and reaching reasonable scale, hitting, hitting 100 million plus in ARR as you're going public. And my recollection is stock, the stock went, hit its initial public offering priced at 10 bucks a share, closed up to like, I think 13 and change on that first day. That seems pretty good. What do you think? I know we're going back a ways, but you know, we're investors kind of seem pretty excited. Why, why do you think investors were excited at that time? Well, they were excited because I think we, we pitched a pretty good value prop to them. We certainly were high growth. That was obvious by the financials. But we made it clear from our point of view, the world that we were stepping into was absolutely greenfield. There's really no application out there like us. And that was just starting with performance reviews. And certainly as we added more products, that made a, a much more robust offering. So it was a large, you know, greenfield opportunity. We can demonstrate high impact, transformational impact on our customers. Then we didn't pitch SaaS and cloud, really, because that wasn't really in the nomenclature at the point in time. We just called it an annuity model of all things because it was still very new. And then we, we highlighted that it was really, uh, we were generating a flywheel that just built upon itself and we just had an aggressive sales approach. And then the way we built the TAM wasn't really a traditional way to do it. We just pitched that every working person in the world should be using our product. And you take that times any number and it's big. So that was the pitch. And I think we had a very good investor set that stepped in, Fidelity being the biggest one right up front, but names like that on the IPO. So you go public, there's a lot of excitement around the name, but like you say, it's kind of like pre, for folks who are listening now, you got to really go back a ways. It was pre-SaaS as like a SaaS, pre-SaaS world. And so concepts like retention rate and net dollar retention and land and expand that were not really well understood by public investors. And the skeptics, there were a lot of skeptics, as I recall, despite the fact that you guys were performing really well as a public company in those first several quarters out of the gate. And my recollection is the stock did not really perform all that well. It was not like a up and to the right kind of story. It was kind of a bumping along, maybe even a little down from that first day of trading price for the next year or so on average. Is that right? And What do you think the skeptics were worried about in your business? Well, the problem with SaaS back then was it was still fresh and new and certainly not understood. So most investors looked at the income statement, which looked quite terrible (laughs) because you would spend all your money to get billings, to do three-year contracts, sign up a customer for three years, invoice them a year in advance. Spend a dollar fifty, two dollars per dollar of new recurring ACV, which is expensive, 
and zero of that showed up as revenue on day one. But all the almost all the expenses hit. So if you looked at the income statement, you really would think it was, and we were told this by investors. Here we go. It's the dot com days again, and so. That was just a problem with the model. And I'll tell you how that played out later, how we actually converted a lot of skeptics over time. But generally, what I recall on the stock price, priced at 10, jumps to 13, works its way up to 15. We do a secondary. It kind of hangs in there. And basically, I think, performed fine. It didn't keep going up. It just kind of hung in there until the financial crisis hit. And then we got hammered. Four to five dollars a share, and it was very depressing. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine <laughs> we were doing nothing wrong, but we were getting slaughtered on the stock side. Yeah. So, so one thing you did leading up to that, as I recall, given how bad the P and L looked, was you guys put a line in the sand with investors and said, "Hey, yeah, gap profitability does not look." good. The P&L does not look good because of the timing and accrual accounting issues you just mentioned, right? And and public investors didn't really grok that at that point. I think they do. They have a better understanding of it now. But you did say, hey, look at the cash flow in our business. You set a line in the sand and said, we're going to turn cash flow positive by X date. Do I have that right? Did that work? Did that quell fears, you know, once you hit cash flow positive? Or, or was it kind of a, wondering if there's anything to learn from that as companies today face a lot of skeptical investors as well. That helped a lot for sure, because once we got the cash flow positive, we were self-sustaining. There was no refinance or financing risk to run the business. There was still the gap profit. I'll call it non-gap profit because even then you could take out stock expense. But there were still those that said you are not profitable. You're not creating value, even though we had positive cash flow. So the cynics were still there. And what we had been pitching is within that renewal, that renewal stream is highly, highly profitable. There are very few costs that you assign to the renewal stream. So the profit is embedded in the model. You just will not see it if you're in the 100%, 50% growth mode because you're taking those profit dollars and investing them in growth. But let us be clear, it's there. And the real, and we proved it because when it hit and our growth went from 100% to zero. Tell us about that. So did you see this coming? Was like the, the GFC, did it hit you guys like a hammer over the head? And were you prepared? What actions did you take? And Yeah, here's a remarkable thing. And I think this is a good lesson for everybody. As we saw it coming, and we saw it coming via the newspaper, we didn't see it in our business. And we would ask all sales management, give us the best case and the worst case. And generally speaking, the worst case was not so bad. And here was the hard call. We had to ignore them because it looked like there was serious carnage starting to gather at some of the biggest enterprises in the world. And even though the frontline sales force said, we're generally going to be okay, the worst case, we literally did not believe 
that was prudent to rely on that. So we made the move actually and got prepared, assuming that it was going to be much worse than what the sales guys were calling. And we were, we were right. So we really made the cut decisions based on the world around us, not by what was happening to our business. Now, having said that, we did go down to zero that quarter. And that was our Q4 where it all comes in the last three days. So it was really pretty agonizing that we made significant cuts going into that part of the year when we really didn't know the answer, but we really paid more attention to the world around us than our own operations. And it turned out to be a good move, actually. So you actually effectuated, you made the cuts leading up to the end of Q4 and just bet our sales team's probably not going to perform nearly as well as they think in those last few days of the, of the fiscal year. And then it turned out they didn't. Exactly. Furthermore, we had just doubled the sales force. Oh, wow. And we had to decide that that last group of salespeople, certainly the last half of the year and maybe the whole year before, were not going to be able to generate any business in this new world. And in fact, they were going to get in the way of the productive reps. So as agonizing as it was, it was basically a LIFO, last in, first out, with a lot of the cuts focused on the sales force, because that was where all the big hiring occurred. And so that's the move we made. And really under the philosophy that they would not be able to sell anything. So as hard as it was to do that, we thought it was a very practical answer, just given the environment that we were in. And roughly, if your headcount was X, what percent of the headcount did you end up reducing? You know, roughly what percent of the spend did you take out of the company? And did you do it all kind of all at once or over the course yeah, of was, a couple of it, different companies? It was roughly 25%. We had analysts write it was 35%, which bothered us because that was too high. <laughs> but it was 25% more out of Salesforce, which is interesting because you would think that's what you would preserve. But no, more out of Salesforce. So roughly 25% in heads, about the same in total spending. And what that ended up doing, and I didn't realize the significance of this until later, investors told us, that drove us to gap profitability. And it proved everything we said about the model worked. And we literally had investors say, I really didn't believe that that's how the SaaS model worked until you guys at Success Factors demonstrated that when you made the cuts. So I want to just pick that apart for a second. When news came out that you guys had done this dramatic cut before your Q4 was even done, and certainly before you announced the results of Q4, the stock dropped to, as you said earlier, like four. I think it was in the $4 a share range at its low, which, as you said, it was kind of in in the mid-teens. So it's a pretty big drop and brutal, must have been brutal on the company. Meanwhile, you've taken out 25% of the heads in the company. And then you've mentioned now investors actually saw it work. So were they expecting that you would lose your existing customer base pretty rapidly during this time frame? And how did you prove the skeptics wrong? Well, I think more than anything, they appreciated the cuts more than anything. I don't know that they really knew what to make out of it. 
But when we said we cut and we're going to be profitable, that was extremely well received. They did not yet know how this would literally play out. But we started to paint a picture that we are probably one of the most well-positioned companies to grow from that point on, given our offering, the way we sold, our financial discipline. So we got credit for making the cuts. And then we tried to get as much credit as possible by stating very clearly we were absolutely from this point on in a position to grow as soon as the market was allowing it and that we were one of the better bets in all of software. And we didn't quite get credit then, but that was the beginning of the march to $40 a share from five. Yeah. So I think I'm going to say from four, so I'm going to give you credit for a 10x <laughs> move. What were some of the points you needed to put on the board to start turning the skeptics into believers? Did you start to show some more growth? Was it more that you retained your customer base and started to show that they were actually quite profitable as you took your foot off the pedal on, on trying to gas growth as much as you had in the past? What do you think it was? Well, we just started to point to growth almost as soon as we made the cuts. And we only had in Q1, we were down our, so Billings was our top line, basically. We had one down quarter, that's minus 6%. And from that point on, we started to grow again. It was something like six to like minus six to positive six, to 18, the mid 20s, and then the 30s. And Bruce, when you say growth in billings, this is year over year, quarter year over year growth. growth. Yeah. So, you know, as we were going into the downturn, it was flat. And then in the first quarter, it was minus 6%. And then from that point on, it was accelerating growth from that point on. In kind of modern parlance, what you call billings. Some companies call bookings. Some companies would call that a total ACV or ARR booked in a quarter. So it was both renewals and new, both growth in existing accounts and new, new account growth that you put into billings, right? Right. And the reason why we focused on billings is it is derived from the financial statements. This is revenue plus the change in deferred revenue, which is the same as invoicing and the same as billings and people have different definitions for bookings that could be one year point of view it could be multi-year point of view but literally revenue plus change in deferred revenue which also pretty much mapped to the number of invoices we sent out at that quarter for that quarter so you do this massive cut investors see that the business isn't falling apart you have one quarter where your top line billings or invoice number goes down a little year over year, mid single digits, and then you start growing again. And then it sounds like the growth accelerated quarter over quarter for the next several quarters. What did the stock do and what were you hearing from investors? Were they still skeptical or did they kind of turn on a dime or what was the mood like? Well, the mood turned positive pretty quickly because we got a lot of credit for what we had said before we made the cuts about how the model works. 
And so we got a lot of credibility points from that point on. And we still had the challenge of explaining the model, even at that point in time. And it was still traditional license, perpetual models, predominant, you know, it was the main go-to-market or financial model. But we got more and more converts from that point on. So the big, long investors got bigger and longer and more showed up. And it was pretty much a steady march from that $5 or $4 to the 40 Pretty steady. In many ways, it kind of like was a little slow going to 20 to 22. And then it really started moving. Yeah, it was not a linear move. You got the stock to the $20 share probably over six or eight quarters post GFC, as I recall. And then the move from like 25 to 40 happened over just a couple of quarters. Yeah, that was really fast. And so question about the mood in the company and how you manage things, right? When you you take a big part of the company out, that's got to be disruptive. So what was that like? And how did you make sure that, you know, you said it was sort of like last in, first out, but you still have big producers and important people in the company you don't want to lose who are watching this happen, watching the stock plummet. How do you make sure you retain your best people? And then when did you realize, hey, we, we can start transitioning back to like offense, playing offense again and growing the company? How do you manage that kind of transition? Well, I'll say, first of all, there was nowhere for anybody to go. <laughs> so we, we had that working for us. But at the same time, we meant it when we said it. We think we are extremely well positioned to really execute well post the cuts. And so if you were a rep that survived that, you really did see incredible amount of upside, both in not only the stock, but really in what that person could individually go get from customers, because there were so many more accounts that they could go harvest or go sell into. And they felt pretty emboldened and they were totally supported by the company, given that they had survived the cut and they naturally were somewhat confident because they were our better ones anyway. And they already had confidence, but they even saw more opportunity with that many more like uncovered or available accounts for them to go pursue and get business from. Amazing. And then how did the SAP deal come together? I would say that was the right company coming at the right time with the right price. What SAP really liked about SuccessFactors was our pitch resonated really well with business leaders, not only the head of people, but CEOs could use SuccessFactors to set goals, to manage performance against those goals. In fact, we said we bridged the gap between strategy and execution. We called it BizX, business execution software. It's really appealing to forward-leaning, C-suite selling companies like SAP. So we were extremely attracted to them. And we kind of woke them up when we won Siemens in their backyard. Like a California startup overcame all the press and the bias against U.S. companies in Germany and won the deal. So that kind of got us on their radar. 
And so that they found very attractive. Now, for whatever reason that I don't know that I can even explain today, our stock went to 40 and then started rolling back into the 20s. And as a management team, we were already scarred (laughs) by the meltdown before. And we were wondering, are we going to be at five again (laughs) through no fault of our own? And so SAP put another $40 on the table. We're in the 20s. And that just sounded too good to pass up. Got it. So it was good timing for them, in addition to kind of, uh, you know, your positioning and, and they're realizing that you guys were well positioned for the future. So look, obviously, the story ends well. If we tag the bottom price at four bucks, it's a 10x from the depths of the global financial crisis to like three and a half years later, you sell in the company. Really remarkable run. Maybe question for you would be like, when people ask you, what did you learn from that time in your life and what might be relevant for others today and anything you'd you'd point to that you think history can repeat itself and that people ought to know from your experience? I pulled out that playbook two weeks ago because could it happen again? Maybe. Actually, I'll take that back. I already pulled out the playbook and used it at Domo when COVID hit. Yeah. The exact same play. We... I modeled what would happen if our top line followed the same trajectory that we saw in the financial crisis. We modeled that out. We were prepared to take action as if that were to happen. And preemptively, before anything happened to our business, we didn't go quite as deep. We took 12% out of Domos. And that actually put us not gap profitable, but it put us to cash flow break even for the first time ever at Domo. It was an eerily similar pattern. So we went public at 21, you know, goes up to 30s, bounce around at 15, back in the 20s. Then this crisis happens, we're at eight. Now, fast forward to what, four or five, six quarters later, we're at 95. So I pulled out the same playbook and really the stock did the exact same thing. And now we're about to hit maybe financial crisis number two in my life at Domo. And we're doing the same thing. We're running the scenarios. If this, then that. We're reading the newspapers and we're watching the leading indicator, lead gen, top of the funnel metrics like a hawk. And we're asking every rep, you hearing anything about macro in your accounts. So if anything, we're even more aware and more sensitive. And it's already lined up. I already have the whole management team. If this, then that, we in? Yeah. So we're locked and loaded already. Awesome. All right, Bruce, that is amazing. It's a great history lesson. And history, as we know, repeats itself. So I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us and experiences from this this moment. I'm going to put you on the hot seat to end our episode with a couple of quick, tough questions. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. What book or article would you recommend to CFOs or founders uh, that you think is, is helpful? Well, it's not so much a book. The most important document I ever got my hands on was a McKinsey article. It was really a PowerPoint on what a world-class financial organization ought to look like. 
And I have used that model ever since I got my hands on it. It must be like 15 years old. It's timeless. And I use that really to run, run the finance department. I use that to educate everybody in my group. That has been one transformational thing. Maybe you'll copy us on it and in the show notes, we'll post it somewhere. Yeah, I'll see, I'll see if I can. But yeah, it's, it's such a good thing. It's so simple too. Awesome. What advice would you give? You're a young guy, but what advice would you give an even younger Bruce from today? Well, you know, don't be afraid of the unknown. You can prepare. I would say treat really disruptive events. Don't be afraid of it. Think of it as an opportunity to really move the business forward, capitalize on the opportunity, improve your market position. So think of these disruptive events as like real opportunities as opposed to scary things you have to deal with. It'll make it much more interesting and less like anxiety if you take that point of view. I love it. You know, like Churchill says, never waste the crisis. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Last one. I know that Domo's headquartered in Utah and you've got a place out there and enjoy the mountains as much as anyone. What's your favorite ski mountain out there and favorite run at that mountain that we ought to be looking for? I have a ski and ski out home on Deer Valley. So that's the mountain and it's pretty wide. It's skiing only, which... Yeah, I love Deer Valley. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I don't know if you know Lady Morgan. Is that what it's called? Lady Morgan. I don't know. It's the, it's, that's the lift. And to the right of it is a black, double black, through the woods, mogul run that's long and hard and not dangerous if you can control yourself. That's where I go to like get my workout. All right. Yeah. All right. To the right of Lady Morgan. Yeah. I think it's called Centennial. I think that's the name of it. Centennial. I'm going to probably try, I'm going to try it and blow my knees out and I'll be. Go nice and slow and stay away from the trees. Don't run into a tree. I don't recommend that. All right. Don't ski near the trees. That's the last piece of advice. Hey, Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. This has been an amazing episode. People are going to learn a ton and it's super timely. Really appreciate you joining us and sharing your experiences. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, Yeah. Enjoy that and uh, talk soon. Sounds great. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme music is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across social internet, enterprise tech, and smart tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $9.2 billion in capital across the U.S., Canada, China, Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, and Israel. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Big Commerce, Grab, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, Zendesk, and many more. The firm has offices in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Singapore, Shanghai, and Beijing. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at at ggvcapital.